All right, so we spent the last three weekends going through one of the richest, most practical texts in the entire Bible, and that is Philippians chapter four, verses six through nine. And so we learned in the last three weeks, right, that if we really wanna overcome anxiety, then we gotta be committed to three things. Proper prayer, that's Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Proper thinking, that's Philippians 4, 8. And then proper living, that's Philippians chapter 4, verse 9. And so I stressed over and over in that series that if we do our part, the Lord is gonna do his part. In other words, if we're committed, right, to rich communion, rich and regular communion with God, if we're committed to guarding our minds, guarding the gate of our minds as far as what we allow in there, what we think, and if we're committed to actually being doers of the word and not hearers only, then what will God do? The God of peace will give us his peace in our time of needs. That's Philippians 4, 6 through 9. Today we're gonna start in verse 10. So Paul's done encouraging the Philippians about how to overcome anxiety. Now he shifts gears. He begins to wrap up the letter with some even um, more rich and practical truths. And the truths that we're gonna look at, they're so rich and they're so practical, it's actually gonna take two more weekends for us to finish the letter. So I want you, before we read verses 10 and following, I want you to put yourself there, right? Put yourself in the scene. I want you to imagine it's AD 61. I want you to imagine Paul, the great apostle. He's in Rome, he's under house arrest. He's chained to a Roman soldier. He's probably um, dealing with having to face anxiety and then do what we just talked about to overcome that anxiety because he's getting ready to stand before one of the most intimidating people in the world, that's Caesar Nero. He's waiting for his day in court. God puts the Philippians on his heart and so he writes the letter that we've been studying now for uh, I think at least two months or so and now he says, if you got that in your mind, he says now in verse 10, so if you're looking at Philippians 4.10, just say amen, I know you're there. He says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have received, uh, revived your concern for me. You are indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him, Christ, who strengthens me. Yet, it was kind of you to share my trouble. Now, that's our main text for today, verses 10 through 14. But in order to understand 10 through 14, we've gotta read what we're gonna cover next week, verses 15 uh, through 20. So please look at verse 15, he says, and you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I've received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God, and my God 
will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, all right. And so when you read the book of Acts, by the way, one of the greatest apologetics for why we know that this book is God's word and it's true. One of the reasons we know um, the historicity of the New Testament is a fact is because of the book of Acts. There, you know, um, there's, there's myth, right, in the world. You read myth, you understand it's myth. When you read Acts, you understand this is a true historical account of actual things that took place in the first century A.D., so when you read the book of Acts and you, you, you read Dr. Luke writing about Paul's travels around the Roman Empire and then you match that historical account with Paul's letter to the church at Philippi, when you put those things together, you come up with this timeline right here. And so around A.D. 50, while on his second missionary journey, Paul, with his friend Silas, they planted the church of Philippi. You guys uh, remember that story in Acts chapter 16. Um, Paul and Silas get into some trouble. They beat uh, their backs. They're bleeding. They're thrown into the inner dungeon, right? And in spite of their circumstances, Paul and Silas are doing what you just did a little while ago. They're praising and worshiping the Lord around midnight uh, in that context. And all of a sudden, remember the earthquake happens, the prison doors fly open, and the guard comes in, the jailer. He thinks his prisoners have escaped. He's ready to kill himself. Paul says, don't do yourself any harm. He's freaking out. He says to, to Paul, what must I do to be saved? And Paul says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be, be saved. And, and so the next thing you know, the jailer and his family have believed in Jesus. They, they're being baptized, right? That's the whole story of, of uh, the planting, at least part of the story, the planting of the church at Philippi. So God does a great work there. Then Paul and Silas later on pack their bags. They go down the road to a, a, another city in Macedonia called Thessalonica. They begin to share the gospel, the good news of Jesus in that city as well. And what did the Philippians, who had been impacted by the ministry of the apostle Paul, Christ through Paul to them, what did the Philippians do for Paul while he was in Thessalonica? Well, the answer to that question, we read it a little while ago, is chapter four, verse 16. So please look at verse 16. Paul says to the Philippians, even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. And so while ministering in uh, Thessalonica, the Philippians sent Paul help, provisions, once and again. That is the second line down on the timeline that around AD 50, Paul received support from the Philippians while he was in Thessalonica. Now, in Acts chapter 16 and 17, you gotta do the work. You gotta do the historical background work. Uh, what you see as you're reading Acts 16 and 17 is that while Paul was in Macedonia, he shares the gospel in Philippi. He shares the gospel in Thessalonica. Then he goes down to Berea. He shares the gospel in Berea. Then he leaves Macedonia. He goes down to Achaia. Goes all the way down to Athens, Greece. Now regarding him leaving Macedonia, we now see in Acts 4.15, 
Um, some of you guys are wondering what in the world is that pastor doing? Um, we're studying the Bible. That's what we're doing. That's what we need to do. All right, so please look at verse 15. He says, and you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except for you only. And so when Paul left Macedonia around that time, what did the Philippians do? They had been so impacted by the ministry of Paul, Christ through Paul to them. They had been so impacted, what did they do? Um, they entered into a partnership with Paul, a partnership of giving and receiving. Sadly, no other church at that time entered into, I would hope that if we, 2,000 years ago, if we could be transported 2,000 years ago, I would hope that our church would enter into a, a partnership with the Apostle Paul, of all people, of giving and receiving. But sadly, no other church at that time entered into a partnership with Paul in giving and receiving except for the Philippians. Now, we don't know how long this partnership lasted, but what we do know from verse 10 is that at some point, the Philippians, quote unquote, lacked opportunity to continue to help Paul. It's probably when he left Greece, okay? And so we see that, what I just said, in verse 10. Please look at Philippians chapter four, verse 10. He said, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length, Philippians, you have revived your concern for me. He says, you were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. At some point, the partnership of giving and receiving ended, why? Because they lacked opportunity, why? Probably because Paul was a world traveler. <laughs> Probably because he was always on the move. We're talking, first, we're talking about first century A.D. Paul was a hard guy to keep in contact with, and it's not like you could just text the Apostle Paul. It's not like you can scan a giving code in, on the seat back in front of you to give to the ministry of the Apostle Paul. No, this is first century A.D., and they had a hard time keeping up with him. And so you fast forward now six years to AD 56, that's three lines from the top, and what do we see there? We see that around AD 56, while on his third missionary journey, Paul visits the Philippians again, most likely on two separate occasions. And then what happens? Well, most likely the Philippians lost contact with him again. Paul's always on the go. But you fast forward about five years, and they hear that their spiritual mentor, Paul, is now under house arrest in Rome. And when the Philippians, remember Paul planted this church, Paul invested in this church, he was their spiritual mentor. When the Philippians heard about Paul's plight, that he was under house arrest, their concern for him revived. And so what did they do? They sent a man named Epaphroditus from Philippi, all the way down across Macedonia, all the way over to the boot of Italy, all the way to Rome, and what does Epaphroditus do? He presents Paul with some provisions, and, um, and that's the fourth line down. And so AD 61, Paul receives support from the Church of Philippi while he's in Rome. Okay, so what was his response 
to their generosity. What was Paul's response to the Philippians' gifts? For that answer, please look at Philippians chapter four and verse 18, verse 18. Philippians 4, 18. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God, Paul says, will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Last line all the way down, Paul, AD 61, writes to Philippians, he acknowledges, thanks them for their gift. Now, ladies and gentlemen, that is the historical background for the text that we're studying um, this morning. And again, we're gonna get into that text a little heavier next weekend. But for now, for the rest of our time today, what we're gonna do is we're gonna pump the brakes. What we're gonna do is we're gonna slow down. What we're gonna do is we're gonna pull over to the side of the road, so to speak, and we're gonna take in verses 11 through 13. I've told you this before, but when you're ever, whenever you're driving in the mountains, if you like that sort of thing, as you're driving around the mountains, round and round, all of it's beautiful, right? But every once in a while, there's an opening. Every once in a while, there's this fabulous vista, right? And so you pull off to the side of the road, if you're like me, you open the door, you get out of your car, you walk and you just look at God's amazing creation. You look down hundreds of feet, maybe thousands of feet, right? You just stop, you pump the brakes, you, you take it in. Well, just like there's those places in nature, there are those places in the scriptures as well. All of it's inspired by God in the original manuscripts, but some parts are so rich and so practical, we just gotta do like it says in the Psalms, sila, let it go from our head and sink down into our hearts. And so Paul, what does he do? He receives from Epaphroditus the provisions that the Philippians sent to him, and then he rejoices in verse 10, and then he says in verse 11, please look at it, please follow along. Verse 11, he says, not that I'm speaking of being in need, Right, he's grateful, he's rejoicing that they've revived their concern, that they sent the gift, but he wants them to know, it's, hey, you know, I'm not, I'm not crying poor mouth, so to speak. It's not that I'm in, speaking of being in need. He says, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be, and what's the last word in verse 11? Shout it out, please. Content. Content. <laughs> All right, so, I wanna define the word, but before I tell you what it means, I wanna make sure you understand what it doesn't mean. Okay, so when Paul writes the word content in verse 11, he's not talking about spiritual complacency. When it comes to our spiritual development in Jesus Christ, the last thing is for us to be satisfied. The last thing is for us to be complacent. No, when it comes to our spiritual development in Jesus Christ, like I preached a month ago, we gotta run to win, okay? And so that's not, when you go to, go to verse 11, you see Paul's content. He's not talking about being content with his spiritual growth. 
So what does the word mean? Part of the definition from Blue Letter Bible, and I'm not gonna try to pronounce the Greek transliteration of that word, um, but here, here's what part of the definition means. Sufficient for one's self. Independent of external circumstances. Contented with one's lot, with one's means, though sometimes it might be the slenderest. All right, and so in my study this week, as I dug down, I also found out that this word in the Greek can be translated satisfied, to be satisfied. So what's going on in the letter? What's going on in the letter is Paul's thankful for the provisions that the Philippians sent. He's acknowledging the provisions that they sent to him. But he also wanted them to know that he had learned by experience that no matter what situation he found himself in, he could be satisfied. That even if they didn't send the gift, he's thankful for it. But even if they didn't send it, he's still gonna be okay because he's learned this beautiful truth of contentment. Now, we're gonna discover when we get to verse 13, and we really pump the brakes because verse 13 is one of the most famous verses in the entire Bible. But but we're gonna learn when we get to verse 13 that this inner satisfaction that Paul had was not a self-satisfaction. It was a Christ-satisfaction. That the inner sufficiency that Paul had was not a self-sufficiency. It was a Christ-sufficiency. And that inner strength that Paul had was not his own strength. It was the strength that only Jesus Christ can provide for his children. One of my favorite authors, you know this by now, Warren Wiersbe. He continues to define the word. I really want to slow down here and take all this in. And so he says that the word content actually means contained. It's a description of the man whose resources are within so that he doesn't have to depend on substitutes without. The Greek word, as far as in that culture, extra biblical here, the Greek word means self-sufficient and was a favorite word of the Stoic philosophers back in those days. But unless you think Warren Wiersbe or me or any other evangelical preacher is talking about humanism, you gotta get the last sentence. But the Christian is not sufficient in himself. He is sufficient in who? Christ. You guys see that? And so as Paul leaned into his relationship with Jesus Christ, Jesus gave him such um, such inner sufficiency, right? Such inner satisfaction, such inner strength that it did not matter what was going on outside of the Apostle Paul because Jesus was giving him these things because he was drawing on the resources of a very real Christ. No matter what's going on on the outside, Paul could say, hey, I'm gonna be okay on the inside. That's what we're talking about as we approach this rich and practical passage. The thought I had yesterday as I was wrapping up the message in my study was a tree and a tree branch. And ladies and gentlemen, as long as that tree branch is drawing sap from the tree trunk, right? 
Just as blood is to the human body, so sap is to a tree. As long as that tree branch is drawing the minerals, drawing the nutrients, guess what? You could have a storm and that, I don't even know what I'm doing right now with my body, but <laughs> my goodness. You could have a storm, the, the branch could be flipping around, the leaves of that branch could be ruffled, but hey, as long as it's drawing the sap, it's gonna be okay. And Paul's trying to tell the Philippians, God through Paul, the church for the last 2,000 years, that hey, Jesus has these amazing resources that we can draw from that are gonna help us in the difficulties of life. Look at verse 11 again. Not that I'm speaking of being in need. Hey, thanks for the gift, but guess what? I've learned in whatever situation, I am to be content. He goes on in verse 12. He says, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ, through him who strengthens me. That leads you to your next point, and by the way, this is the big idea of the message. This is the main theme for today. And that is no matter what Paul went through outwardly, he was content inwardly. By the way, does anybody think that this life principle right here is important? I'm telling you, man, the world is seeking after inner satisfaction, inner sufficiency, inner strength, and they're going to all the wrong places. We got the answer right here in Philippians 4. And so no matter what Paul went through outwardly, he was content inwardly, drawing upon the sufficiency, satisfaction, and strength that only Christ can provide. Now, Paul's writing this in AD 61, and his outward circumstances aren't the best. He's under house arrest. <laughs> He's chained to a Roman soldier. I mean, and by the way, did you guys know that the very house that he was incarcerated in, that Paul had to pay the rent for that house? For two years? I mean, talk about a bad deal. You say, where do you get that from? I get that from Acts chapter 28, verse 30. You gotta listen, you gotta match the historical setting with the letters to make sense of the New Testament. And in Acts chapter 28, verse 30, it said that Paul, under house arrest, lived there at his own expense. By the way, aren't you glad the Philippians sent Paul provisions? Maybe he used the provisions from Philippi to pay the rent for the house in Rome. Do you guys see this? If you put God first, He's promised to meet your needs. He'll take care of you. He'll provide for you. And you better believe God provided for Paul. But he's under house arrest. He's paying rent for two years. He's chained to a Roman soldier. He's got no freedom. He's got no privacy. And not only that, he's waiting for his day in court. That means that Paul is trying to get mentally prepared to stand before the most intimidating person on the planet at that time, and that's Caesar Nero. <laughs> and so, hey, outwardly, 
things are kind of blowing around a little bit. That tree is kind of getting its leaves ruffled. But Paul was still content inwardly. Why? Because he drew, like the, the branch draws the sap. Paul drew upon the, uh, the sufficiency, satisfaction, and strength of Jesus Christ. Listen, this is the answer right here. We just gotta open up our minds and let it go down into our hearts. You want inner peace? You want inner satisfaction? You want inner sufficiency? This is it right here, right now. But here's what I know, we have an enemy, and the enemy's trying to cloud our eyes from the truth. We gotta turn our backs on the enemy, and we gotta turn ourselves to the truth of God's word, and we gotta let this stuff come in. And so, Paul, when we consider all the types of situations that he had been in over the years, here's what I know also, <laughs> that being under house arrest toward the end of his career, it's really, uh, comparatively speaking, <laughs> what he's been through, it's really not that bad of a situation. Do you know what Paul's been through? Uh, rewind now from AD 61 under house arrest to AD 56 thereabout. Paul writes a letter to the Corinthians, uh, second Corinthians, and in the 11th chapter, I'm just paraphrasing, uh, but in the 11th chapter, verses 24 through 28, Paul talks about how on five different occasions, as he's living for Christ, speaking for Christ, the unbelieving Jews, now you guys understand, I know there's new people to the Bible, new to church, um, um, that when the church started, it was 100% Jews, or almost 100% Jews, who believed in Jesus, right? And so um, there's lots of Jews who love and believe in Jesus. We're talking about unbelieving Jews who rejected Jesus in the first century. On five different occasions, they took the apostle Paul out back, and they gave him the customary 39 lashes across his back. Ouch, right? Can you guys imagine if the government came through those doors right now and grabbed some of you and began to beat your backs? That's what we're talking about, what's going on in the Bible. That happened five times in Paul's life, up to AD 56. It may have happened more. And not only that, he was beaten with rods three times. And not only that, he was stoned and left for dead one time. And not only that, he was shipwrecked three times. And not only that, uh, he spent a night and a day drifting in the sea. We think it's the Mediterranean Sea, all right? So pretty big, big um, pond there. Can you imagine if you were hanging on to a board at night in the middle of the Mediterranean, not knowing what's swimming underneath you? Welcome to the life of the Apostle Paul. And not only that, he says, I'm in danger from Jews and Gentiles, rivers and robbers in the city and in the wilderness. Often, he said, I found myself without food, sometimes exposed to the harsh elements. But in spite of all those difficult circumstances on the outside, here's what Paul would want us to know, that inwardly, hey, I'm okay. I'm satisfied. I'm content. Why? because I know how to draw upon the resources of Jesus, the satisfaction, the sufficiency, and the strength from my Lord. What's your secret, Paul? 
The secret is in verse 13. Again, one of the most famous verses in the whole Bible. He says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, we gotta pump the brakes even more here because this, even though it's one of the most famous verses in the Bible, is also one of the most misinterpreted by, uh, verses in the Bible. And so we gotta stop here for a moment and we gotta clarify. That leads you to your next point. Okay, so when we're talking about verse 13, all things in that verse doesn't mean that we can do whatever we want and expect God to bless it. So we gotta let that sink in for a moment. Lots of people, and I think most of them are well-intentioned, they don't mean any harm. I, I get kinda nervous sometimes, you know, because James says, be not many teachers, for they will undergo a stricter judgment, and I know that someday I'm gonna have to stand before Jesus eyeball to eyeball and give it a, an account of all this talking that I do every weekend, so pray for me. But I really want to make sure we're rightly handling the word of truth. So one of my jobs as a pastor is to expose, even though it might be well-intentioned, um, expose error. So what do many Christians do? Many Christians take this verse, Philippians 4.13, out of its context, and they began to teach things that the Apostle Paul wasn't even talking about. It really becomes problematic when they make certain decisions apart from God, and then they claim this verse, thinking that this verse will magically ensure the success of their endeavor. In other words, they have, they're self-willed, they're not praying, they're not seeking the will of God, Right, and so they're like, well, I'm gonna go to this college, and I'm gonna get this degree, and I'm gonna start this business, and I'm gonna set these goals, and I'm gonna take this risk, and I know, I know it, it will succeed. Take the verse out of context, because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Well, ladies and gentlemen, you can name it and claim it all you want, you can declare it and share it all you want. But here's the thing, my question is, did God lead you to do those things? Because if God didn't lead you to do those things, we have no right to claim a verse when the verse isn't even talking about those things. Is this making sense to you guys? Okay, and so let's not misinterpret the verse and think that claiming it is gonna ensure the success of our self-centered goals. It's not what Paul was talking about at all. You gotta leave the verse in the context. You gotta do the work. You gotta find the historical background. And you gotta study. You gotta read the verses before the verse. Read the verses after the verse. And when you leave the verse in its context, you find out that Paul was talking about being content inwardly no matter what's going on outwardly. He's talking about being able to face plenty or hunger, abundance or need, and still being content and satisfied because of his relationship with Jesus Christ. That's what the verse means in its context. So Paul could say this, no matter what happens, I can get through it. Why? Because of Christ who strengthens me. What a beautiful truth. What a great truth for us to hold on to. Now let's drill down even more. Can money give us that kind of satisfaction, sufficiency, and strength? No way. The world is filled with rich people 
who when faced with adversity, who when things don't go their way, they moan and groan and they freak out. Okay, so money won't do this for you. You say, what about education? Hey, I'm a big proponent of education. Just look across the street, right? I believe in education with all my heart. But listen, education, even though it's great, alone is not gonna give us this, this sufficiency, this satisfaction. There's plenty of educated, highly educated people with all these uh, letters behind their name. And when they're faced with adversity, and when their things aren't going their way, what happens uh, with these people? They freak out, they moan and groan. Why, because education can't do that for us. What about power and position? No, <laughs> some of the most powerful people in the highest positions, when they're faced with adversity, they moan and groan and freak out. Power and position can't do it. How about the, the uh, positive thinking alone, <laughs> right? So many people believe in positive thinking, but listen, you can think positively all you want, but if you're not drawing from the, the spiritual resources from Jesus Christ, you are going to, and I'm going to moan and groan and freak out whenever things don't go our way. And so when we're thinking about what does it mean to be content, we gotta make sure we're accurately defining the biblical term. And it's so sad to me when people, they try to find this contentment, they try to find inner satisfaction apart from Jesus Christ. People chase after so many different things. They'll go to anything and everything trying to find this inner satisfaction. And apart from the Lord, they'll never ever get it. And so we live in the United States of America, it's 2021, and guess what? We live in a materialistically minded culture. And so one of the main ways that people in the culture try to find this inner satisfaction is through wealth and material possessions. So let's think about this for a few minutes. What did Jesus have to say about all this? Well, the greatest preacher preaching the greatest sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, he said, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. <laughs> wow. I, I can imagine Jesus preaching his heart out and he gets to this right here and a bunch of people turn around and walk away. They don't wanna hear it. Why? Because they love their stuff. And Jesus says, do not lay up for yourselves. Literally in the Greek, do not uh, treasure up treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. And so in Jesus' day, people were treasure, treasuring up treasures. Um, in that day, the treasures would have been really expensive fabric and really costly metals. And what Jesus is saying, hey, that expensive fabric can be eaten by the moths. And that, 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 uh, those, the, the certain uh, metals, costly metals, uh, rust can corrode that stuff and thieves can break in and steal both of those items out of your house. So what's the remedy? The remedy is stop selfishly hoarding it. Stop loving it. Stop making a show to everybody about it. Stop trying to find satisfaction in it. All right, so why do people selfishly hoard 
costly material things. The reason why is they think that the more costly things they have, the more satisfied they'll be. If I can just drive the, the, the super expensive car, if I can just live in a mansion, if I can just get that 88-inch OLED TV that takes up the entire wall of the living room and the wall's like gonna fall over, right? If I can just get that gold chain, oh no, no, two, no, three, no, four, no, five, if I can just have the bling, if I can just show it off, right? If I can just get some inner satisfaction from all of this stuff, and Jesus says, no, it's not true, it's a lie. You're not gonna get content, you're not gonna get satisfied by this stuff. We are blessed, you guys know how blessed we are? Everybody in this room, people who are watching, we got the Bible open, we're reading God's truths about true life, while all the culture is running after stuff, trying to fill the void. Man, we gotta share this good news with others. Because Jesus is the answer. Paul told Timothy this. He said, godliness with contentment is great gain. <laughs> For we brought nothing into the world and we can't take anything out of the world. And so forget costly possessions. We're talking now about any possessions. Listen, ladies and gentlemen, you and I should not get too attached to possessions. Why? Because at the end of the day, we can't take it with us. You guys have all seen this picture, right? <laughs> Listen, when your day comes, and how many of you guys know your day's coming? Oh, just me? <laughs> Did you guys hear a memo from heaven, the rapture's happening or something? Listen. The Lord may come, I hope he comes in our lifetime, but he may not. And so 10 out of 10 people, unless the rapture happens, 10 out of 10 people are not getting off this planet alive. And so not if, but when your day comes and when your body is in the back of that hearse, I guarantee you, your hearse is not gonna be pulling a U-Haul. Why? Because you can't take it with you. You cannot take, I cannot take our stuff into the next life. So why do we love it? Why do we live for it? Why do we seek it? One of the most, uh, kind of on a funny note, one of the most startling stories I've ever heard years ago about a guy in San Francisco who loved his Lincoln Continental. Do they even make those things anymore? I don't know. Um, but he loved his Lincoln Man, I hope no one has a Lincoln Continental in the parking lot right now, I'm dead. But anyway, um, if you do, praise the Lord, okay? All right, I'm just talking about a, someone different from you, okay? So, um, <laughs> this is a guy, uh, he loved his Lincoln Continental so much, he wanted to be buried in it. And his family actually uh, uh, honored his request. It was in his will, they honored his request. They buried him in his Lincoln Continental. And I'm thinking, good night. Does this guy, when he was alive, did he really think that he was gonna you know, jump in his Lincoln and drive into the next life from the cemetery to the next life? You know? hey, if that's what he thought, he was gravely mistaken. Okay. 
you guys didn't do as good as last service. They, they got it in two seconds. Some of you guys, or some of you guys are like, Pastor, that's just not even funny, okay? <laughs> but that is my feeble attempt at humor, okay? All right, so Jesus says, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. All right, so let's think about what does this mean? Is he saying that you should never save for the future? Thank you, you can say no, it's okay. Yeah, no, he's not saying that. Listen, why saving? We gotta, we gotta read the whole Bible, weigh scripture against scripture, right? And so get all those principles, look at, look at all of them. And so, hey, why saving is one thing, selfish hoarding is something totally different. And so those who selfishly hoard show that in their hearts they love money, they love the things that money can buy, and that can get us into big, big trouble. Paul said this to Timothy. He said, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil from which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and they've pierced themselves through with many sorrows. All right, so is there anything wrong with money in and of itself? No, it's the love of money. That's the root of all kinds of evil. So the question we have to answer is, do we serve money or does money serve us? Somebody wisely said, I wish I knew who said it, I don't, um, but I'll, I'll give him credit anyway, whoever he was um, or she. Money is a great tool, but a terrible master. I like that. Money's a great tool. It's a terrible master. It could be a great tool. You know, it could be a great tool when you support your local church, when you use it to pay bills, when you save and you invest, when you get time away with your spouse or your family, when you give to solid ministries outside of your local church, when you help others. Money can be a great tool. This is why I think now for more than 10 years, we have every semester pretty much offered Financial Peace University. Why? Because if you'll get in there and you'll take that class and you'll discipline yourself and you'll work those principles, you can actually get to a place where you are debt free. And when you're debt free, now all of a sudden you got some margin in your life. You don't have to make a big deal about it, but now you got some margin and when the Holy Spirit speaks to your heart and says go over there and help that person in need, your left hand doesn't know what your right hand is doing. Nobody needs to know about it but you and the Lord and you just go meet the need. And that's a beautiful place to be. We should all wanna get to that place. We should not allow ourselves to stay in being, being drowned by debt. And if that's you, I don't know who you are, but if that's you, hear me. There is hope in Jesus Christ. And there are principles in the Bible about financial stewardship and about how to handle finances. And God can help you get out of that and get you to that place where money just becomes a tool where you're not serving it, where it's serving you. But if our attitude changes towards money, we start to love it, right? It becomes our master. We develop a materialistic mindset. Paul says, you're gonna pierce yourself through with a whole lot of sorrows. And so what's one of the remedies for a materialistic mindset? Here's your last verse, we're almost done. What's one of the remedies for a materialistic mindset? Well, Jesus said, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. Here it is. 
but lay up for yourselves treasures in where? Heaven. Ladies and gentlemen, heaven is coming like a freight train. Whether you know it or not, like it or not, believe it or not, it's coming. Where neither, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal, for where your treasure is, Jesus said, there your heart will be also. And so one of the remedies to combat a materialistic mindset is you gotta develop a heart for heaven. I know it's hard in our culture. Our culture doesn't even think about heaven. Because we live in such a materialistically minded, everything's about now, here and now uh, culture. But we're different, we're children of God. And so if we'll just develop a heart for heaven, people don't even have to tell us. Listen, we're going to lay up treasures in heaven because our heart is there. The bottom line is we should be kingdom-minded. In other words, we should give our time, we should give our talents, we should give our treasures to the kingdom of God, to, the, to God's agenda. That's what we're called to do as children of God. Our time, our, our, our resources, our energy, Right? If you seek first, Matthew 6, the kingdom of God and his righteousness, all these things, the necessities of life, are gonna be added to you. So don't worry about that. Jesus wants us to go for it. He wants us to be like the Philippians, for example, who sent provisions to Paul, and uh, at least for a time. right? And, and you know, they were rewarded in heaven. Now, I, I know I, I'm always misunderstood, right? So let I me mean, clarify. I'm not saying you gotta give to the church or any kind of organization in order to be able to go to heaven, okay? So if you heard me say that, say amen. amen. Okay, we get to heaven by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Turn to Jesus Christ in genuine repentance and faith, believing that he paid for your sins on the cross and rose again, you receive him as your savior, man, you're saved. You get there because he shed his blood for you. But once you get there, what you receive there in terms of rewards are determined by your faithfulness on the earth. If you heard me say that, say amen and heaven's coming like a freight train. Whether we're ready or not, whether we like it or not, whether we believe it or not, it's coming. And I'm telling you, um, once you get there, you're gonna be concerned about those rewards. And so, hey, lay up treasures in heaven. Have a kingdom mindset. Verse 11, Paul says, not that I'm speaking of being in need. For I've learned in whatever situation, I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Hey, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And so why? Why was Paul inwardly content, inwardly satisfied, even though Outwardly, his circumstances were tough. Here's why, one last time. Because he drew, just like the branch drawing the sap, he drew that sufficiency, that satisfaction, that strength from his relationship with Jesus Christ. That's, what's, that's what it's all about, a relationship with Jesus Christ. All of us, right, we've been born in this world with this void, 
and nothing and no one can fill the void except a relationship with Jesus Christ. Do you have that relationship with the Lord? 